intentional gathering online, in person, or a mix of the two starts with the same question, which is what is the need here? Why are we gathering? And who needs to be there to help us achieve that purpose? You're listening to Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life, but what might we be getting wrong? In this series, Series 3, I'll be exploring sleep, the science of emotions and fast fashion. And I'll be asking my guests questions like, is baby brain a real thing? Is everything we've been told about skincare wrong? And why aren't we talking more about dementia? This is a podcast that asks, what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. Welcome to the last episode of series three of Doing It Right. I really hope you've enjoyed the series and it's given you some pause for thought. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes to help other people find me. On to the episode. Priya Parker is a conflict resolution strategist based in the States and the author of a 2018 book, The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. It's a book about how to bring intentionality and purpose to our gatherings, both professionally and personally through work and meetings or at get-togethers in our social life. I've wanted to speak to Priya since I read The Art of Gathering back in 2019 because so many of us, myself included, struggle to maintain our social lives, what to spend our time on and who with, what to say yes to, what to say no to, what to seek out and what to avoid. Lockdown afforded us a pause to think about how we live our lives and when we came out of it there was a sort of mass appraisal of how we wanted to spend our time and with whom. But I'm not sure how long that appraisal lasted. A lot of us fell quickly back into familiar patterns of feeling time poor and overburdened. Flakiness is a modern epidemic as seen in the dozens of memes about how the best gift is when someone else cancels first. Priya talks about gatherings big and small in a way that she calls small p political because it is deeply political to decide what we celebrate, elevate and value through who, why and when we come together. I think Priya offers a really unique perspective on gathering and what it actually means. I hope you enjoy it and thanks again for joining me for Series 3. Priya, thank you so much for coming on to Doing It Right. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start by asking you, why is gathering so important and what do we often get wrong? How we gather and the fact that we gather fills our everyday lives. What we pay attention to grows. Well before the pandemic, you know, we've, we're, we're gathering all of the time, but so much of our gathering is on autopilot and was until it was massively interrupted. In what way? So many of the ways in which we gather were inherited from other people, other moments of time, other, you know, needs. And part of the art of modern gathering is basically to pause and to not say, you know, this is an inherited form. This is how we should wed or this is the way we should mark new life coming into the world or this is how we should have our monday staff meeting 
but is instead to pause and say, because by the way, it's always been done that way. Instead, to have an intention for the gathering or for a gathering is to basically start with an observable need. What is actually needed in this community or in this workplace or in this family? And given that need, who needs to be a part of it? And how, at the simplest level, how do we want to spend our time? And in some communities, rituals are still incredibly relevant. But for many of the people I spoke with, with, with much of what the research shows, in mo and particularly in modern communities and diverse communities and global communities, you know, I think it was the year 2007 where the UN published that it was the first year in which the majority of human beings lived in cities rather than in rural areas. And what that basically means is the majority of human beings don't live in the places in which they were born. And when that's true, so much of how we figure out how to connect with one another needs to be really thought through because there's not an assumed single way of being. That reminds me of a story that you told, which I think is the experience of a lot of women actually, is that when you had your child, you had a baby shower. And in hindsight, you realized it wasn't actually the way that you would have chosen to welcome a child into the world. You, you sort of couldn't really pin what the purpose was. And it was, and it comes obviously from times where women would be the ones raising the children. So they would come together to have this moment. But actually now, thankfully, parenting is well, it's much more shared. And so having these moments like a baby shower where it's just women and the man having nothing is, what purpose does that serve? It reflects the assumptions of a different era, right? And part of what, and, and so many of us are kind of in the transition <laughs> of, of how to live, right? How to be, how to parent, how to partner, what is work? And so often, it's our rituals, it's these moments in time that we've often seen in other done before, that if we don't actually pause and think about it, we repeat even if they no longer serve that purpose. So just as you said, and I've been told a baby shower is a uniquely American invention that, that perhaps has spread <laughs> to other parts of the globe, but I think in many traditional uh, communities, uh, the life of a of a child isn't celebrated or marked in a community until uh, the the big the big moment is actually when they turn one years old, and even that is a symptom of kind of the realities of history, in part to just make sure that the baby is safe and the mother is safe. But many of the baby showers I had you know come up going to were all basically all female, all women events affairs, often doing kind of sweet activities like pinning the diaper on the baby or, uh, you know, making a onesie. And as I, as I prepared to welcome my first child with my partner, with my husband, you know, friends very generously offered to host a baby shower for me. I was so delighted that, that someone was willing to do that. And at the last minute, my husband said, you know, can I come? And at first I thought, no, you can't come. This is, <laughs> this is my ceremony. And then he said, well, aren't we parenting together? Like, why, why is it that you just get something? And then I realized, huh, he has a point. And the rituals that we had reflect an era in which people were getting married younger and needed more help defraying the costs, in which the mother not only was the person giving birth to the child, but also often the person raising it. And so these rituals were incredibly important to specific people in moments of time. 
But if there's a new generation of people, and particularly men, and particularly in same-sex marriages, and particularly in all of these formations who need the support of their communities and who are trying to figure out how to parent and be part of a village, a modern village together, many, you know, not having support for the other side of that partnership and not marking these moments and not trying to figure out how to actually be together in these new ways leave us ritualless and rudderless. So if we're thinking about leaving old ways behind, what should we consider when negotiating how we come together? To actually reimagine rituals is actually a deeply small p political process because it actually gets down to these very core norms and assumptions of what we believe the role within a family should be, what we believe the task of a shared partnership should be. And, and it actually means kind of getting in there and sorting it out. And so the, the, the knee-jerk response to, isn't necessarily to blow it all up, right? What the thoughtful, the intentional gatherer, and in part the intentional citizen, we just happen to be talking about gathering, is to actually pause and really deeply ask these questions. Well, what can be shared across, even if you keep it in hetero, heteronormative or same sex, what can be shared across parenting? In a study in America in 2013, 75% of respondents said they were unsatisfied with their friendships. And yet, you write, we tend to keep gathering in the same tired ways. We're almost a decade on and one pandemic later. Do you think that's still the case? It's gotten worse. And, you know, we have a U.S. attorney, a U.S. Surgeon General named uh, Dr. Vivek Murthy. And he, interestingly, he was both President Obama's Surgeon General and President Biden's Surgeon General. So he's been part of two separate different presidential administrations. And during President Obama's administration, he declared well before the global pandemic hit that the U.S. is suffering from an epidemic of loneliness, a national crisis of loneliness. And he was ringing this bell well before COVID-19 hit. And he's now, and now he's, you know, it's become an even, an even deeper problem. And part of, you know, part of it is how we spend our time with people. How do you actually create meaningful time and not, and not, uh, you can hang, you can hang out and not actually meaningfully connect with each, with one another. You can hang out and not have meaningful conversations. You can be spending time in ways you don't actually want to be. But many, many, many people, in part because of the way in which, at least in the U.S., people work, the cultures around work. We, we, you know, I think there's recent studies that show that that the majority of Americans, you know, don't don't have three close friends. And then there's actually antidotes. There's hopeful studies that show if you just have three, you don't need a thousand people to be rich in community. That's probably actually too much. You are lucky enough to have three close friends. You're doing quite well. So the British anthropologist Robin Dunbar came up with with Dunbar's theory in the 90s, which is that the tightest circle in your life has just five people. And then the next layer is 15, which are good friends. The next layer is 50 friends. Next layer is 150 meaningful contacts. The next one is 500 acquaintances. And the last one is 1,500 people you can recognize. Do you find that useful at all? Part of the reason I appreciate Dr. Dunbar's work is he was one of he was one of the first kind of as an anthropologist, but then also as somebody who really cares about how people live. 
popularizing numbers that otherwise, you know, sociologists are interested in, <laughs> you know, maybe facilitators are interested in, but helping people really think about whether or not that's, that's sort of true for them. What is the right size of people in my life? What are, what is the right, and then very practically, what's the right size of group for any gathering? And, you know, when I, um, I wrote The Art of Gathering, it came out in 2018, and I had done research on it for, for three or four years. And part of my research is I interviewed over 100 different people who other people credited with consistently creating transformative group experiences. Everything from a World Cup hockey coach who has 10 days during the Olympic trials to figure out how to take 17 players who have been playing for their entire life for their own nations and make them Team Europe. Like, what does he actually do? Minute by minute, second by second. And or choir conductors, rabbis, photographers that have nine minutes with the head of state and 19 bodyguards in the room. Like, what do they actually do to shift a room? And a wedding planner said to me, you know, the, the ideal size for a wedding is 120 people, and sort of close to 150, because it's the number of people, a bride and a bride, or a groom and a groom, or a bride and a groom, over the course of an evening can walk through and make eye contact with. And I think part of, as we start democratizing gathering, right, part of the reason we're even having this conversation is because in traditional societies, and even 50 years ago, there were roles within specific institutions that were specialized roles that were in charge of our rituals, right? There were ministers and there were rabbis and there, were, and there still are, but at least in the US, church attendance is down, right? Our trust in institutions is down. And, and as our institutions are crumbling and maybe they will be rebuilt, who is in charge of these moments starts to become sort of lay people us. And so numbers like this are helpful in part because perhaps, you know, 50 years ago, there was a single way to have a wedding and you kind of go to the church, or you go to the mosque, or you go to the rabbi and like you don't even, you feed your guests afterwards and that's kind of it. We are now in charge of questions like what should the ritual be? Where should this be hosted? What is our assumptions around divinity? What role should our communities play in? And these are questions that used to be incredibly specialized. And they're now basically within every household, within every family, within every workplace, because the art of gathering and meaning making is now everybody's opportunity and everybody's problem. So if we stick with numbers, if 120 is the magic number for a wedding, what do you think the magic number is for a meeting and for a social gathering? Great question. It depends on the purpose of the gathering um, and the vibe that you want. But groups of six tend to be really good if you're what you're wanting is an evening or a meeting or a or a leadership day of really rich conversation in which people in which everybody is meaningfully participating. Right. So groups of six for over a table, often in houses of worship and in the U.S., the sort of the church model, often they're called groups of six um, to come together and to try to make some of these massive churches feel smaller and more approachable. The disadvantage of six is it can't hold dead weight. Right. If one person's checked out or texting under the table, everybody feels it. <laughs> Twelve is great for kind of more of like a buzzy dinner party vibe. It's also harder to have one conversation unless you're sort of a really skilled facilitator, it's t it tends to break up into three conversations or four conversations or six conversations of two, which can also create its own dy dynamism. 
Um, and then 20 to 30 is kind of the size of a of kind of like more of a buzzy, you know, a buzzy party. But density matters. So so if you have 30 people in a cavernous, you know, atrium, you're going to it's going to feel quite overwhelming to your guests. It's one of the reasons why studies show people often end up in a kitchen or moving to smaller, tighter and tighter you know, areas within a house or within an office space when people start leaving because density is a huge element of creating, uh, uh, of creating kind of a buzz. This episode of Doing It Right is sponsored by Simply Roasted Crisps. Crisps with all the flavor, crunch and satisfaction of a normal crisp, but with 50% less fat, 25% less salt, and under 99 calories per serving. Now, I love a crisp, or 50. I like to think of myself as a crisp connoisseur. I won't bore you with my hierarchy of crispdom, but what I will say is that I have been historically skeptical of quote-unquote healthy crisps. It was a bad time for me when everyone was serving those root vegetable crisps at dinner. Anyway, I never believed a tasty crisp could be healthy until I tried Simply Roasted by the brilliantly named Mindful Snacker, who have spent 10 years honing their patented roasting process, which produces the only roasted potato crisp on the market. It's no surprise that these thick-cut crisps are award-winning. If you'd like to get in on the crunch, I have good news for you because Simply Roasted are offering 30% off your first purchase. Head to simplyroastedcrisps.co.uk and buy yourself a box using the code PANDORA30 for 30% off. That's simplyroastedcrisps.co.uk. Thank you very much to Simply Roasted Crisps. Boundaries are also important. You're very clear on this, the idea that if everyone is invited no one is invited. By closing the door, you create the room, you say. It's hard to exclude people, though, and for them to not sometimes feel hurt How do that. you advise people to, because I think this is particularly hard for people pleasers, how do you advise people to not invite someone, even though it would be easier, to stick with the kind of intentionality at risk of potentially upsetting someone and how do you advise people to deal with not being invited i think it matters on the stakes i think it matter it depends on your relationships i think it depends on uh the specific gathering i will i'll give an example and i'll i'll, I'll use myself the first thing i'll just say is often we think you know you you were probably raised how i was which is with the spirit of generosity there's always one more you know chair at our table the more the merrier and often, the more is not the merrier. It can be. There's certain, there's certain gatherings that benefit from size, you know, the World Cup or a massive concert. But for many of our more simple gatherings, the more people you have, the more complex the group dynamics are. And often, because we're not clear on our purpose of the gathering, we over-include. And when you don't know why you're gathering, it's really difficult to defend exclusion. So I'll give an example. When my husband and I uh, got engaged, we, as you've heard, I have sort of a complicated family background, and we wanted to get together his parents, who are Indian, and my father and stepmother. And we, li we lived at the time in a different city, and we were going to come home for the holidays. And I asked ahead of time to both sides, we'd like to get you together for a tea, for an afternoon tea. And I knew that there was going to be a visiting aunt 
like staying with my parents. And I said to them ahead of time, I we're going to be together for like three or four days. I would love to have just two hours, three hours where uh, you come and, and we just have this tea. It's really important to me and I really want to get you to know each other. Yes, 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 no problem, no problem. We, you know, we'll, no problem at all. At the last minute, you know, literally 20 minutes before the gathering, I get a phone call. Her plans were canceled. Can, can we, you know, can she just come? It's, why is it a big deal? Can she just come? And <laughs> I took a deep breath and I paused and I said, I basically said no. I said, um, it's really, I, I, it's really important to me. I would really love for just this time for this really just to be parents. And they were surprised. They were slightly upset. They, they, you know, they acquiesced. They came, and we had the most wonderful tea. And a lot of different things happened. First of all, if you think about it, we talked about math earlier, right? There were six of us there. With a seventh, even if you have two hours, 120 minutes. You know, it's it's actually less conversational time for each person. Also, once the person's in the room, most you know, if you're if you're if you're being conscientious about the dynamics, you're going to bring in the person least involved, right? So that's the kind thing to do. Uh, the third is so much of what was shared was uh, each of us are holding different roles in different moments, and by not having basically their sibling in the room. They didn't have to play that role to think about what converse, you know, what are they going to say? What are they going to share? And later, and they had a beautiful, uh, we all had a beautiful tea. And later, you know, my, I repaired with my aunt, but I, but they said, you know, do you not like her? And I said, I love her, but it's, it's not personal. It's, it's purposeful. And part of what happened there, you may be listening and like cringing, but part of what happened in me drawing a bound, a meaningful boundary and defending why this was so important to me is I basically said at some point, like, we will have many different occasions around this wedding, but this is this is at some level the parents' tea. And and why that was important is because they had a unique role in this wedding. And I wanted them to have a meaningful connection before they started talking about really complicated stuff, like all of the things that you know creates conflict, money, you know, meaning, ritual, you know, place, symbols. And it actually created a little bit of some space to signal what the rest of the wedding would be like. It was, you know, it was difficult. So much of gathering is line drawing. Now, if you are having a family occasion and, you know, you're kind of annoyed with a cousin, I'm not saying don't invite them, right? What I'm really deeply saying is to pause and first say, like, why am I actually inviting these people and to what end? And, and, and by the way, people feel really honored to realize that they actually have a purpose there. They have a role there. That reminds me a bit of the concept of people being either radiators or drains. And obviously, it would be ideal to have a party that's only filled with radiators, you know, warm, gregarious people who, who fill you up rather than drain your energy. But obviously, the reality is that your best friend might be married to a drain or your sibling might be, I don't, I'm laughing because my siblings probably will listen to this. None of you are drains. But, but the truth is that everyone has a, a, an unavoidable drain in their life at some point. What do you do in that situation? Do you invite a soother? So I have a few friends who are always like, I am always put next to the difficult aunt or the horrible great uncle because they will kind of soothe and smooth the situation. What do you do about drains and smoothers? So, <laughs> I mean, I, I might, 
Um, I haven't heard that before that as a frame. I might, I might offer a, a slight critique to it, which is I don't think it's an identity. I think it's a situation. And I think we all have our inner drainers and we all have our inner radiators. And so often, I mean, yeah, sure, some people are so high off the chart that they're going to drain all the time. But, I, but, but part of when I think about, like, how do you design a gathering, a huge part of having, like, a specific theme, a specific purpose, like inviting people to play a specific role is when you are gathering in a way that's interesting to people, it helps them kind of tap into their inner radiators, and I think whether you're a boss or whether you're a neighbor or whether you're a parent, part of the role of a host is to find out, like, how do I turn on each person's little radiator light just for a night? Um, and people can surprise you. You're right that the, the onus should be on the host to create an environment that their guests are going to flourish in. But presumably there's a responsibility that works both ways that you should also be intentional about what you say yes to there are situations where you have to say yes to something well I think that you have to say yes to something for the greater good perhaps that's a wedding that you really don't want to go to what do you do in that situation do you do you just do you just think okay I'm not going to be in my element tomorrow and but I've just got to kind of pull up my bootstraps so I think going back to this radiator point, to me, I think so much of radiation comes from like, like choosing your life, choosing your moment, choose like choice and intentional guesting. Like this work is called the art of gathering, not the art of hosting, in part because guests have a lot of power in affecting a gathering. Right. You can feel it when, as we talked about earlier, someone's you know, rolling their eyes or under the, you know, kind of sabotaging something or chuckling on the side, pulling people away from the center of gravity. Like guests have power, both positive and negative. And I think so often, you know, when we think about, OK, how do I intentionally guest? What do I want to actually attend? So the first is to start thinking about, you know, practicing this almost this muscle. An invitation comes in and rather than knee jerk. And I think the and I think the pandemic helped us. It it slowed us down. It 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 actually got us off autopilot. Mm. The adrenaline of going from you know gathering to gathering or meeting or meeting kind of stopped. And I think a lot of people as they're re-entering in different forms realize you can't kind of do it at the same pace that one used to. And so you pause and actually ask, what do I want to attend? And to that obligation line, if you choose, that's why I talked about stakes earlier. If you choose, there's a higher purpose to my relationship in this community or my role in this community than me wanting to attend this specific form. And I'm going to say yes to this gathering because I'm saying yes to that larger role in my community. Then to go into that and choose being there rather than resenting it. Resenting creates a lot, resenting is like an energy suck. And so if you choose to go, choose to go fully. So you, you reframe, essentially. I think about what I'm saying yes to and then I make a deep decision about how I want to show up. And I try to always be a good guest. And if I don't want to go and it's really bothering me, I then take a larger look at the relationship. And I think about why am I feeling this way? And do I need to make some larger changes? That's such sane advice. This podcast is all about debunking myths. And one of the myths that I had been laboring under until I read your book is that a relaxed host makes for a relaxed guest. But you say that a chill host can be a disservice. When one is hosting, 
it is wonderful to be temporally relaxed, right? To be, it's like when you go to a convention or conference and the speaker's really at ease, it eases everyone else, right? Versus if the speaker's really nervous, like the whole audience is clenched up. <laughs> so, so don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that, you know, the relax in terms of your sort of emotional state. What I'm talking about is a little bit more deep, which is, and often there's this assumption that like we should leave our guests alone. We should allow them to decide, you know, at, at every level kind of how to be. And also, you know, guests can meaningfully connect. Guests can also be terrible to each other, right? The drunkle getting, you know, cornering someone in a, you know, in a, at, a, at a wedding, mansplaining over meetings. People are, there's all sorts of things can happen in gatherings, positive or negative. The role of the host is to really practice what I call generous authority. And generous authority is first realizing you have power and you're convening. You're actually suggesting that people are spending their time at a specific moment in a specific way. But it's to use your power for the good of the group, to help them to connect with and understand the purpose of the gathering, and to connect them to each other to protect them from each other, and to temporarily equalize. And this is often incredibly, you know, you, you, only want, you only really see this when things start going badly and the host does nothing to protect it. And that could be a volunteer training where there's 12 people or 20 people and one person is clearly, one, one volunteer is clearly taking up way too much time, asking way too many questions. Everyone feels it and the host doesn't say anything. It can be at a panel if someone's moderating and there's a Q&A and all of us and, and, and they've asked the audience to ask questions and one person stands up and talks for five minutes and there's no question there and everyone starts shuffling in their seats and the moderator doesn't do anything, <laughs> right? And so, so part of the role, when I say don't be a chill host, it's really a call to action to say first start with intention because you're asking people to spend their time in a certain way and that's a sacred act. And it's much better to think about it ahead of time so you're inviting the right people. You're orienting them to knowing what they're saying yes or no to. And then you're setting them up so then they can have agency and independence within the gathering. But knowing what the guardrails are. And at some level, like knowing who's steering the ship. Do you think gatherings always need to be fruitfully adversarial? How much is a kind of a bit of tension or a bit of disagreement productive? I often think about gathering almost metaphorically like a like a painting. And I'm not a painter, so so for the painters listening, <laughs> I'm sorry if I botch up this example, but there's different colors, there's different canvases, there's different needs based on the emotion that you're trying to bring about. And that's true for gatherings. And and some amount of frisson, some, some amount of creative tension, some amount of playful bantering or jockeying, jockeying helps kind of gives life to a gathering. If a dinner party breaks out into kind of a, a full-scale row, is it the host's responsibility to break it up? <laughs> How much time do you have now? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I mean, my knee-jerk answer is yes. But part of that is it's the host's responsibility. The, the role of the host doesn't start when people walk into the room or enter the room. The role of the host starts from the very beginning. It starts from the intention. It starts from thinking about who should they invite and why. It starts think from thinking about who might come together and what is the purpose. And then guests have the choice of saying, yes, I want to sign up for this. Mm -hmm. And so at some level, like I said, generous authority is to protect your guests from each other. It, this isn't a dinner party, but one of my favorite examples is a movie theater in, in the U.S. called the Alamo Draft House. And 
unlike their competitors, AMC or Lowe's before the pandemic, in most movie theaters, I don't know about in the UK, there's usually an ad or some sort of jingle ahead of time that tells people not to talk on their phone, not to lock, talk too loudly. But basically, if someone does, no one does anything about it. It's up to the guests to, you know, turn around and give them a stink eye or, you know, shush them. The Alamo Draft House has the same rules, but they protect their guests and they protect them by their theater that actually serves food and drink. And they, they basically figured out the system that if you put on your order card, which is the same card that you would order a beer on, hey, you know, person in th- row 32 is being really loud, then an Alamo Draft House staffer goes and gives them a warning. And if they do it again, they kick them out. That's such a good idea because I hate when you have to kind of keep huffing and staring yes. because someone's texting or being really loud. You're right. The owner should not be on the guest, the paying guest. It should be on the, the cinema. Correct. And often, and that's true in every gathering, right? At concert mm-hmm. venues, conferences. One of the most interesting things about the pandemic to me, when it was first hitting, was it became the social x-ray around decision-making. And, I don't, you know, the, those first few weeks in March, I remember here one of the biggest conferences in the U.S. is called South by Southwest. It's this big tech and entertainment conference. And it was, it was the biggest conference at that time, it was in my memory at least, where it was, at the, it was right when the pandemic was hitting and there was this huge standoff between the organizers of South by Southwest and the city of Austin in Texas because neither side wanted to cancel. They didn't want to have the cancellation on their hands. It was $350 million to the local economy. It's the location where so many artists and tech entrepreneurs and indie filmmakers launched their, you know, their dreams they've been working on for years. And basically, because neither side, they had to decide who, where did the buck stop? And who was actually responsible at the end of the day for this conference? And that is true in every gathering, right? Is the host the security? Is the host the, 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 the ticket taker? Is the host the, who in any of these institutions is a host? And you walk into a store at some level, each of those, each of the people working in a store is a host. And there's some brands that get that and there's some brands that don't. But we are always responsible for safety at the minimum within our gatherings. But at the maximum, creating a place in which people don't just have to be safe, but they're, they, they, they can be brave because, because they know that there's a floor. Does every gathering need a purpose? Can it ever just be a mindless hangout? Or is that a purpose in itself? I think of a purpose. Uh, a purpose need not be serious. <laughs> it, is, it is the activation of a need. And if, an, if your need is, a, is, like, is like a rave or a night with your best pals watching Netflix or going to the bar, like you don't have to even tell your guests that. It, this is like a very simple practice to begin actually asking and locating, what is it that I actually am desiring? Do I like spending my time in this way? How do I actually want to spend time with these people? If the way you're spending time with your friends is awesome, keep doing that. This is really for those who are realizing that at some level they are tired of doing of, of spending time in the ways that they are and they want to they want to think about how to make the ways they spend time with their people better. We are more connected than ever before, but as we've established, we're also 
there's a loneliness epidemic. We are more kind of disconnected than we've ever been before. Do you think it's because online gathering never really stops? There's this constant dialogue. Are we just not intentional enough with our digital communication? And I mean, it's so much more of a sprawling world than than IRL, but how can we be, how should we be being more intentional online? Designing how we gather online is as important as designing how we gather in person. And in part because of the pandemic, there's been a rapid acceleration of what people actually do on Zoom or Google Hangout or choose your favorite technology. And many of these technologies weren't created for the uses that they are now you know, being asked to, to, to be applicable for. I mean, when the, I would imagine when the engineers at Zoom were creating this technology years ago, they never imagined that a choir might want to practice on it. And they would never imagine that you actually may not want to choose a square to decide that the algorithm should choose which square you know, wins when everyone's talking at once. <laughs> and, and so part of, part of like modern life and so many of these in our workplaces with our weddings, I mean, so many weddings took place over Zoom. And while they're, they're you know, in this moment and many communities in-person weddings are happening again, they've shifted the way we often think about our weddings. Because I know of many different contexts in which if guests can't come, there are people who are thinking about hybrid options to have a grandmother that can't travel still witness the wedding, right? My, my, my grandmother passed away this year. And the funeral we were able to have as a global family, as a family full of diasporic patterns in Australia and in the UK and in India and in the US, what we were able to do to mark her life was fundamentally shifted by what we learned in the pandemic. We were, there was, there was siblings in, in a room together. There were cousins and uncles all over the globe together being able to watch and to meaningfully participate in real time on Zoom, something that we would have never done four years ago, but the people who couldn't travel could still meaningfully participate. We figured out, my aunts and uncles generation figured out how to have song, how to have a bhajan singer. Like all of these skills, it's, we've been transformed to actually really deeply think about who and where and why and what do we gather and how do we use technology to serve us. And I think the online gatherings that are still incredibly clunky is when we let the tech lead or the form lead rather than, again, I'm going to sound like a broken record, pausing and asking, why are we doing this? Who needs to be there? And how do we run this meeting in a way that actually achieves our purpose and lets people feel like they're a part of it? I love that as well, because that puts a positive spin on Zoom, which has become kind of shorthand for everything that was wrong with how we <laughs> communicated. You know, people would say, yes. oh, not another Zoom or because offices got quite carried away and tried to sort of replace water cooler chat with like daily Zooms, which just did not work as a sort of yes. social lubricant or informal <laughs> informal yes. meeting. But the way you say that is, is such a salient and I think important reminder of the kind of compassionate power of technology that it's not, it's not a net bad, that it enables so many wonderful relationships that might wither otherwise. And so, I mean, there's communities that have been talking about this well before the pandemic. Disabled communities have been leading for years in a conversation about how do we meaningfully access gatherings, you know, without needing to be in the same room. And it takes a, it takes work. So even if we think about hybrid gatherings, 
you know, they're not, it's not one gathering. If you have a, if you're running a meeting in a workplace and you have some people at the office and some people zooming in, that's not one gathering. It's three. It's three simultaneous gatherings. It's the people in the room and thinking about their dynamic. It's the people on the Zoom and thinking about their dynamic and their interaction. And then there's a choice to connect the two. And like, you know, sort of going back to our earlier conversation around democratizing, you know, the thinking around gathering, we have an opportunity now to really think about how do we want to run something and where and when do we need to meet in person versus when can we make it online. Uh, one of the, my favorite articles from maybe a year ago is in the Harvard Business Review by a facilitator named Ray Ringel, and she has this wonderful graph that basically looks at when do groups benefit from meeting in person, and she focuses on the workplace. And she has this lovely X by Y graph, and it basically says it depends on the emotional complexity and the content complexity. And the, and, and, and the more emotionally complex and the more content complex, the more a group benefits from being in a room. And so that could be conflict. It could be complex leadership training. It could be decision-making when there's a lot of different conversations and voices. But a report out can probably do it on Zoom, right? And there's actually certain, there's certain gatherings that are much better on Zoom. When you have a, I, I, you know, I work with a lot of groups. I still, I've learned how to facilitate online. I almost would rather have an experience, if there's a thousand people, I can make through the chat, through the use of a chat, I can find out more data and have people feel more meaningfully connected than if they're in the room, right? You ask a question in the chat, pop into the chat, what was your first concert and who did you go with? Right? Oh, I love that. And then, and then you see all these thousand answers and people are laughing. You realize like, oh, there's other people. Wow, they're that older. Oh my gosh, they didn't go to a concert until they were this older. You know, they, that's their favorite band. You ask that in a room, how are you going to get that data from a thousand people? And so these are all technologies. They're just forms. And again, like not to sound like a broken record, it, intentional gathering online, in person, or a mix of the two starts with the same question, which is what is the need here? Why are we gathering? And who needs to be there to help us achieve that purpose? Well, that's a brilliant note to end on. Priya, thank you so much for coming on to Doing It Right. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for modeling beautiful hosting uh, with me. <laughs> I you. loved your questions. And, um, and, and I, wish, I wish everyone listening you know, more fruitful gatherings. And if all of this feels slightly overwhelming, start with just being a more intentional guest. This episode of Doing It Right was hosted and exec produced by Pandora Sykes. Production is by Joel Grove. Subscribe now on any major pod platform to get the episodes as soon as they land. This episode of Doing It Right is sponsored by Simply Roasted Crisps. Crisps with all the flavour, crunch and satisfaction of a normal crisp, but with 50% less fat, 25% less salt and under 99 calories per serving. Now, I love a crisp. Or 50. I like to think of myself as a crisp connoisseur. I won't bore you with my hierarchy of crispdom, but what I will say is that I have been historically sceptical of quote-unquote healthy crisps. It was a bad time for me when everyone was serving those root vegetable crisps at dinner. 
Anyway, I never believed a tasty crisp could be healthy until I tried Simply Roasted by the brilliantly named Mindful Snacker, who have spent 10 years honing their patented roasting process, which produces the only roasted potato crisp on the market. It's no surprise that these thick-cut crisps are award-winning. If you'd like to get in on the crunch, I have good news for you because Simply Roasted are offering 30% off your first purchase. Head to simplyroastedcrisps.co.uk and buy yourself a box using the code PANDORA30 for 30% off. That's simplyroastedcrisps.co.uk. Thank you very much to Simply Roasted Crisps. <laughs> 